Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill? For me? That's right. The Little Pink Pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flibanserin. Learn more about The Little Pink Pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved Little Pink Pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. And I just want to say to people who are watching us on YouTube, which you can do every week, um, this is the last <laughs> bit of Kylie merch I own. I will return, be returning to my normal clothes next week. But anyway, I'm Louis Fertel. And it's a sad week here at Keep It because after years in the biz, Ira and I are separating from Scooter Braun. And I am sorry we have to report it this way after such a fruitful and productive partnership. His bills have been affected. (laughs) (laughs) The the girls are leaving. Here's my thing. I am like, what's going on? I would love to know. Because it's in droves. I could get someone leaving Scooter Braun, but my thing is Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, Ariana Grande, Girl, what's the running Pharaoh report dropping? I, you know, it, you, it really feels like some publicist got in a little caucus, said something is up, something's about to come out because these are the the cream of his crop, right? Uh, I know. Maybe someone also told them that he's an adult named Scooter, and they should just get away. <laughs> Girlfriend, this I'm isn't sure the Muppet me- Show. Don't be trusting sure people some- named Scooter. I'm sure something messy will come out, but actually, something messy should come out now. Meaning. Listen, I had like so much fun last. First of all, I was rewatching the YouTube channel and like <laughs> seeing your face when Punky was like, "Girl, what's going on in your relationship?" And I, you were like, "Uh." <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was wondering if they edited that together, me gulping fifteen times. I sounded like an idiot. I mean, it was probably like the Big Brother producers like making like Heisen <laughs> look evil. It was like, let's make Lewis look goofy. But we do have a guest of guests this week. Like, she is an icon. She's a legend. She's currently the moment. And, like, sometimes when people say that, it's like they're over-exaggerating because they're gays on the internet. Uh But, like, this is a real keep-it icon. 
And also, just like one of these people, like many of the guests we've had, where you can jump to any era of her career and just do an entire interview about that. We did our best to jump around. We have Adina Menzel with us today. We do. We do. She is. She has her new album coming out. Um, listen, she's, she's one of the pop girls now. Which, of course, she has that capability. She's sung everything else before. Of course, she can handle, you know. A disco tune or two. BB Rexa, watch out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like I'm, I'm like such a big fan of Adina Menzel, so we're very excited to have her on the show. And also, this week, we asked all of you to ask us pop culture questions, like an AMA, yep. because one, we're lazy. <laughs> I have to say, when you provide the content, the show is easier. <laughs> We were like, should we play a game again this week? No, you know what? Ask us anything. And you know what? People love asking us anything. And I felt like this was very attuned to you because I feel you do like an AMA on Instagram every week. I, I do it about once a month. And I again, I have the delusion okay. that people want to ask me questions and it takes no. But they um, do. Yeah, well, right. But like it's probably the percentage of people who actually reach out compared to who doesn't. You know, like I'm not really taking that into consideration. <laughs> I'm not really doing the metrics on this. But um, yeah, it's fun. Also, it's just like you and I will sit here and bring up the same three names again and again. It's nice to have like other names thrown into the fray from Strangers and friends alike. Eric Roberts. Oh, have you seen Star 80 recently? It's so good. <laughs> uh, by the way, I was thinking that I was listening to someone who was one of our regulars that like you bring up, but it wasn't Sandy Dennis. It was Kathy Dennis. Kathy Dennis is the person who wrote Can't Get You Out of My Head and Toxic. And she was a pop star in her own yes. right who did uh, Touch Me All Night Long and Just Another Dream. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I had some friends watch A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 for the first time. Uh And there is a different song that uses sort of like the same chorus, but it led me to the Kathy Dennis. And I was like, I forgot how fucking good that song is. That album, she has an album called Move to This. Um, Here's a little secret about me. About 10 years ago, I, I did a freelance assignment for VH1 where they just wanted us to pitch shows all day to them. And then they would, if they were good, they would buy them off you for like no money at all. It It was like... I don't want to call it a scam, but it wasn't like that's a why money we're striking. Yes, right, precisely. It was, it was a money making operation for people that weren't me. Um, and I pitched a show about choreographers, and I called it "Move to This" based on that Kathy Dennis album because it's one of my favorite albums. Mm. Wow, you could you could have your like very own platinum hit. Yes. Oh my God, you can't be bringing up lesser Bravo shows right here. Look up platinum hit with Cara Diaguardi. Which also, Kathy Dennis wrote Can't Get You Out of My Head and Toxic. Yes. And I feel like maybe she should have been in the room during Padam. Because let me tell you something. Yeah. Being here, like, as I said, like, I'm on Fire Island. Like, I'm, like, towards the end of my tenure here. The song is still going. I was... And some... <laughs> some kids are still right getting now. into it. I'm wearing a necklace that says Padam Padam But I'm just sort of like, you know who is not feeling Padam Padam? Anyone who does not suck a dick. No, I, I recently I was in a car with uh, my friend Nico, and I put on an older Kylie Minogue song called "Like a Drug" from her album X, which is one of my favorite songs of hers. And he just goes, "Do you think any straight person has ever heard the song?" And I said, "Absolutely <laughs> not." <laughs> that reminds me of so like back earlier when I had first moved to New York, I had my close friend Dan. Um, he hadn't come out yet to like his fraternity brothers. And I remember I posted Kylie, like when, um, in your arms, like 
dropped, like the video dropped. I posted on his Facebook page. This is how long ago this yeah. was. Um, and I remember he deleted it off his page because it was like, I don't need people like knowing that I'm gay, etc. But thinking about it in retrospect, can you imagine a single one of his fraternity brothers seeing a Kylie Minogue song on his Facebook page and knowing who the fuck she was no. and then deducing that he's gay? No, that's just it. You have to have the first coordinate of even knowing <laughs> who she is to be able to make that deduction. So, no, I think they, they probably saw, like, Pig Latin. I don't know what they saw on the screen. Not even her face. <laughs> uh, so we're going to do our AMA this week, but also... Lewis, you did see passages. I did. Yes, 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 yes. I decided to be like yeah. a, a gay person in the cultural space. Yes. So we're going to talk about that. And we also have Kyle Turner here uh, to talk about queer film. And there, he has compiled an incredible list going back to uh, the 1910s all the way up to these days with uh, fabulous movies like Carol and Can You Ever Forgive Me and things we're familiar with. But we'll dig into that whole uh, annal with him. Yeah. You know, King Kong is suspiciously missing from that book. And, and you, that, yeah. is a, that is a, a queer film. Yeah, well, he, queer will, canon. he will be at Folsom this year. Trust me on that. <laughs> uh, so we will be right back with more Keep It. Let me tell you something about experience, Lewis. Uh-huh. It does not pay the bills. True enough. Just a basic yeah. fact of life. Okay. Okay. That's this week's topic on work appropriate, where ain't nothing going on but the but rent. But the rent. Oh, I love that song. Gwen Guthrie. <laughs> Join host Anne Helen Peterson as she sits down with children's TV expert Alice Wilder to talk about internships, the benefits, free versus paid, and more. Listen to this episode and other work-related conversations every Wednesday, only on Work Appropriate, wherever you get your podcasts. One thing about our listeners is that you all have recognized that Lewis and I have impeccable taste and have never been wrong, except about Barbie. <laughs> and I'm learning. Girl, I'm listening to everybody's <laughs> critiques, and I will get the right opinion soon. They are still lighting you up about Barbie. Well, I wish they would find something else to do. Barbie always does. She went and became a doctor and an astronaut. Adventure Barbie. Yeah. She's doing. She's in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we decided to do a pop culture AMA, Ask Us Anything. Technically, AMA is Ask Me Anything, but it's two of us, so it's like, I guess it's a AUA? Sure. It, it doesn't roll off the tongue, I don't like to say. Yeah, it really doesn't. But we're going to go with some of these questions. So... Can I start with one of my own? Please go. Okay, good. Because, of course, my questions are equally as fascinating. Name a beloved song you never want to hear again. Mm. Can I start? Please go. Girls just want to have fun. I simply don't want to hear it ever again. I, first of all, girls are not a monolith. I think she, she made a leap she shouldn't have with that song. And then secondly, when it comes on, I'm just like, it feels like we're at a carnival. I can't, I can't stand the, the clamor of it. It's too annoying. And she's not an annoying vocalist. 
Like I love time after time. I love change of heart. I love um, hole in my heart all the way to China. Like all, uh, all through it the night. It is that you picked that Sydney Lauper song because this, I wouldn't say that's my pick. Yeah. But if I ever hear fucking True Colors again, <laughs> particularly uh, at an emotional like, moment, it's like okay. And and people are always like, oh, doing like an emotional cover of True Colors for like Pride or something. It's like I don't want to hear that shit. No, unless you're doing unless you are literally the Crayola Pride campaign, I do not want to hear that. <laughs> um, beloved song that I never want to hear again. You know, maybe it's that. Maybe it's also. Oh, you know I love Hall and Oates. Uh huh. Yes, this is. I'm already shocked that you have brought up Hall and Oates. Right, because like I like heard it the other day, and it was like, oh, there was like, I was like, oh, I have my like tattoo, my like Hall and Oates tattoo, and it was like, here's my thing. I love a lot of their songs, but I actually don't need to hear Rich Girl ever again. Interesting. I don't like it. I was wondering if maybe you were going to say. Um, the one that went viral in that video like 15 years ago, making my dreams come true or whatever. Oh, I love that one. Okay, though. you can keep that one going. All right. You know, I love all one thing about one, one thing about my dreams, <laughs> I'd like them to come true. Okay, that's what they, I'll remember about those. Uh, <laughs> no, I was going to also say, speaking of them, after last week when I said I'm still a fan of Charlie Puth, in mm. his hollow notesiness, he came out with a song that is good. Lipstick. Yeah, love it. It's a very good song. I, he does call I, women um, bitches in it. Unfortunately, he he's in a genre I call rhythm and douche. And <laughs> you just have to expect that sometimes, okay? Misogyny is part of the game. Sorry. You know what? Like he's like, you know, like he's trying to be like, you know, like a white Tupac, like a white biggie, you know. He's like, you know, you know, acceptable these, things these, like these, a white these, Tupac. These bitches be doing it, you know? <laughs> and these bitches gotta know. I will <laughs> The f- one of the funniest like tweets I saw about it was <laughs> he he like tweeted like lipstick out now and someone was like um, Rihanna when you want new music from her <laughs> so good <laughs> but it is good it's like sultry it's sexy yes it, he, I he, like it he lost the sultriness before and he's gotten it back anyway let's get back to these questions uh, one of them uh, is from one of my favorite follows on Twitter Wonderkind eighty seven. Hi, Yannick. What are the best worst TV shows based on a movie and best worst movies based on a TV show? Best worst TV shows based on a movie. Uh, God, that's really hard. The other way, I think The Fugitive is one of the best movies based on a TV show. It's also a Best Picture nominee, which it was the first at the time uh, that kind of adaptation to get a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, I would say that I feel... The Mission Impossible movies, of course, too. Yeah, that's amazing. And also, and I mean, I mean, it's based off a Martin Landau, Barbara Bain series that we have a blockbuster universe based off that I should be uh, very <laughs> thankful about. Listen, my friend, my girl was on the show and the show got canceled for a reason because I will say a TV version of True Lies. What were we doing? Who was in that? Mm. Oh, no, no. Ginger. From a couple of weeks. Yes, yes, of yes. course. Yes, yes. Right. I saw it. What were we doing? Yeah. She was like, "What am I doing?" She was, she was just gonna like it in check. I know that because <laughs> it's like true lies. It's it's just like the thing about true lies for me. Here's the thing about like adapting a movie into a TV show. A movie like the movie is sort of like the movie can be good, 
and the movie can have a good concept, but the thing about a movie is that like it also captures like a cult like Barbie is so big because it's like a cultural moment, yeah, right? Uh-huh. You know, and like the reason True Lies is so big was because it involves like Jamie Lee Curtis is like doing like the strip tease and like that sexiness. There was just like it's interesting and fun because Jamie Lee Curtis is in it doing this part. Like you sell movies based on the movie star who you're going to see doing something. So when you adapt a movie that people famously liked for a certain reason into a TV show with like other actors who have never been like in that thing, it's like, it's never going to translate because you're never going to be able to recreate that moment that was it, you know? And like, yeah, that movie was defined by star power for sure. Definitely. Heather's, Need I say more? Yeah. I, I, I thought the direction of Heather's was the worst part, actually. It's like you could hear the funny jokes in there, but they weren't landing. It's like every joke was in outer space or something. Um, uh, let's see here. Here's a good one from The Professor. Favorite song from an artist mm. you overall don't like? Don't I mean, this is shady right off the bat. I'm trying to think of somebody I'm... <laughs> who do I hate and yet tolerate every once in a while? Well, I'll say this. I obviously don't roll with, like dad music generally speaking or rock music mm-hmm. is not really what i listen to that said if you put on do it again by steely dan honey i feel like dancing uh and put like flipping burgers and uh, uh sh- you know shaking it in the yard you don't like steely dan i mean i like some i like uh uh brooklyn the song brooklyn by steely dan but i'm not like a, a careerist of theirs i don't know everything they've ever done First of all, whenever we get on this podcast, you're basically reeling in the years. <laughs> Ricky, don't 1973, lose that who can I talk Lewis, about? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's not that I bringing, hate up them. Sa- <laughs> bring, bringing up Charlotte Rampling, you're like, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> <laughs> do it again. <laughs> um, okay, here I will say, like, and listen, she's like, She's got some bops, uh-huh. a couple, but like Megan Trainer. I was gonna bring up her. <laughs> not really, not listen, not really our girl. Yeah, but the song "No." I was gonna say "No" is definitely her best song, and you put that on. Like, now I'm on a treadmill. It's a bop, and yeah. also that's a song where it's like, give it to like any of the like other pop girls, and like people would have been standing it. Can I say something? Just provocative. I know people don't want me to bring mm-hmm. up Taylor Swift. I know they've had it. But let me simply <laughs> say something. In the Reputation era, when she has that song, is it Endgame? And she's like, ooh, you and me got a big reputation. Nah. She does. And you heard about big me Big reputation. Big How? reputation. Ooh, you and me, we got big conversation. Oh. And you heard about me? How is that different <laughs> from Megan Trainer? How is that different? <laughs> the, the, the... Mega Traders never booked future. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, it feels like the thing that people consider cringe about her is like rad about Taylor Swift. Okay, moving on. I don't want to get in there. I'm going to be shot. Okay. Also, Megan doesn't have a reputation. Right. She because can't no one sing talks that. about her. <laughs> Seems like a nice girl. She has, as a mother. Remember that song? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here's an interesting one Ungrace, uh, Ungraceful G says, who are the most boring celebrities that Hollywood keeps pushing? I mean, my answer would be most of them. People are, like, perpetually boring now. 
You know, people don't want to, they're not pot stirrers. They're not going to give you an interview like Noah Galvin did that one time where he's like, let me call out every uh, bad person in Hollywood. Noah Galvin, bring that back. I love Noah. Um, and that was honestly one of the worst crimes against a celebrity that was ever committed. Like when he said all that wild shit in that Vulture interview and then everybody was like, oh no, you need to walk that back. No, and I was like, someone was finally being fucking interesting and talking about like what you all say anyway. And it's like, oh, okay, you can't drag Brian Singer? Right. Like, yeah, you're really Brian's- looking for a Valkyrie sequel? <laughs> <laughs> you know I've been waiting. I think Tom can really nail it this time. <laughs> boring celebrity. You know what? I don't know if this is boring, but there are like a couple songs that I sort of have liked a Phoebe Bridgers, mm. but I will say that overall, she's kind of boring. And I saw a tweet the other day where someone was like, people have been sort of getting like misogynistic with her because like she broke up with like a beloved actor like Paul Mescal. And I was just sort of like, honestly, he's kind of boring too. And I feel like the internet likes him because he's like, he's hot and like he's Irish, he has a little accent and we saw him like fucking in normal people sure but like other than that great like, actor yeah great like, listen you know young actor yeah young performer <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes um after sun of course was ready to turn it off yeah. and i did turn it off because <laughs> it wasn't good and i didn't like it um and i think that both of them are kind of boring and people were like Oh, people were dragging her because, like, maybe she, like, broke up with Paul Mescal to, like, be with Bo Burnham, whatever. And I'm like, it's the maybe of it all that is so boring, okay? Like, Ariana Grande is out here as, like, you know, tip, tip, tip on, you know, um, cheater floor, okay? <laughs> like, chip, chip, like she, she, she's adulterating all over the place. Yeah. And <laughs> stepping people out, are standing stepping her. In. Yeah, right. Girl, people are, like, standing her. And I'm like, people are standing Angelina Jolie. And it's like, yes, I understand that, like, there's bullshit misogyny that is always, like, thrown at celebrities and stuff but it's also just like the entire thing about her and paul like that maybe relationship whatever it was just like all a lot of maybes and it was never really confirmed and it all just felt very like oh you're sort of interested because these people are pretty and like whatever and it's like i don't know bridges over troubled water i'm bored (laughs) okay phoebe bridges sorry what's the name of that boy genius right she's in that yes okay that album was picked no. to me a hundred thousand times. I'm not saying it wasn't like uh, good, and I think the three of them have a fun dynamic together. They performed on Kimmel one time. I watched them in the audience. I mm. don't know that I was obsessed with it. I sort of missed. I, I I didn't really get it. That's all I'll say. Boy genius. The only boy genius I know is the smart guy. I'm gonna say, what about Dexter, honey? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, well, him too. Yeah. Honey, we in the laboratory now. <laughs> it's Cartoon Network and it's 1999, bitch. <laughs> Here's one from Instagram that I, basic, but what is your favorite TV show of the past five years? You know what I think I would say? First of all, my mind immediately goes to a limited series space, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I feel like maybe that's where the best TV has been in limited series over the past few years. I think Mm -hmm. I would say Mayor of Easttown is my favorite uh, show of the past five. Just a traditional mystery with one exceptional performance that I did not expect. Did I ever expect Kate Winslet to go to Pittsburgh, know what that is, be able to spell Pittsburgh? No. Um, she's <laughs> she's uh, married to somebody whose last name is Rock and Roll. She, her life is crazy. So for her to make this show, and it, I thought it was so good. Je- I even like the end of the mystery, which if you look at the history of 
um, the mystery genre in movies, rarely are there good endings to mystery movies. You know, that's true. That's true. They're usually bad. They're usually bad. Honestly, I know there's like a lot of limited series and things. But if I'm talking like a series that, you know, has had like a couple seasons and like more is to come, P Valley. Mm. I fucking love it. I yes. fucking love it. And I think it's really good. And I would like more people to be watching. Like we're on like the strike, like the writer's strike. It's like more people should be watching P Valley. That- Evan Ross counts, watch P Valley and like put some memes up from that. Okay, like instead of just like white lows and, and just like that, because I'm tired of them white women. Like P Valley, the girls are popping their pussy and serving. People don't know the show. It's on stars and it's yeah. about a strip joint. And yeah. the characters are fabulous. We had the creator on years and years ago. Katori Hall. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. The great Katori like, Hall. I, I just think it's it's like a really good show. And I think it's just like it's it's written beautifully. The characters feel very real. And then also like there's the athleticism of just seeing like, you know, the whipping, you know, like Doing their thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which, you know, I don't get to see in real life because I don't go to those kinds of clubs. So it's actually an anthropological show for me. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Most disappointing celeb industry encounter. I can think of one because I thought mm. it was going to be amazing. So is that the okay. TCAs, which is where I've explained this before. It's where uh, twice a year... TV shows trot out their casts, and then like uh, the media gets to interview them, ask questions of the creators, whatever. It's when shows are introduced to the universe. It's, it's sort of an old mo- model of television. But anyway, one time, years and years and years ago, Mamie Gummer, the daughter of Meryl Streep, was in a Shondaland show called Off the Map. And, you know, mm. I'm excited to talk to Mamie Gummer, whatever, right? Because, you know, as a reporter. Shockingly, I'm walking through the hallway, and Mamie Gummer sees me and walks up to me. She's walking at me. This is the daughter of Meryl oh. Streep. Okay, she's gumming. Yeah, she's gumming. Right? <laughs> <laughs> she's smacking her gums together. Yeah. She comes in up to me, puts her hand on my shoulder, and goes, your fly is down. That is among my worst moments. And by the way, you know my underwear was like fruity and faggoty. So, like, it, so she got a glimpse. <laughs> And I was like, wait, stop. Your mom has 21 Oscar nominations. Talk to me. Mm. How about you? Honestly, okay, so this is going to be messy, but whatever. Okay, uh, hit it. That's, that's, who we, that's who we are. Um, so, like, I was at the SNL after party once, and I met John Hamm. Oh, sure. And I was like, you know, I'm friends with Kiernan, you know? So, like, we chatted about it. Um we like we like record like a video and sent it to her, you know. Cute. Um, and it was like a few months before, like then I did Watch What Happens Live. Oh right, um, yes, uh-huh. yes. Uh, and John Hamm was on it with John Slattery. Uh, and then you were the bartender, yes. Just just stabbing me and my ego. John Hamm came up to me and said. Nice to meet you. Oh, that's too bad. You can't and expect like, celebrities oh, to remember people, though. You know, I know. You can't expect them to remember it. But I was like, we turned up. <laughs> you should have burst into tears right then. <laughs> You're like, I sat I through Tag sobbing. for you. <laughs> Honestly, I did watch Tag. Is it okay? It's good. I like to Tag. You know what else I watch it? I watch, I watch that Fletch movie. Right. No. But <laughs> I, I watched it on Delta. Okay. Listen, I watched it on Delta 
four vodka cranberries in and on an edible. So that I, honey, I was living. No wait, it, Jeremy Renner is. <laughs> it could have been tar. Right? Yes. Yeah, it could have been tar. I do you know what? I, <laughs> yes, wow. Um, do you know what movie I had never seen and I finally watched last week? Do you know North Country with um, Charlize Theron and Frances McDormand? Anyway, it's about like w- women and they work in mines in Minnesota and they're being harassed on the job by these. Other I know workers. of it. Okay, right. Never, never a film that I intend on watching. I, I had a couple hours and I went for it the other day. I love Charlize Africa. <laughs> right, but I don't. I don't want to watch her doing that. Um, Jeremy <laughs> Renner is in it, being absolutely disgusting. It's actually an awesome performance, but his he's so gross. It's like oh, like I can't. I, I can't believe that was the Jeremy Renner we got pre. Hurt Locker, like he really transformed in the public eye. You know what's kind of wild? I feel like maybe he look, took like a different turn with like his public persona and like doing like the Hawkeye-ness of it all. Uh-huh. But like he really could have been like eating Casey Affleck's food. Right, right, right. Like yeah. he's very Casey Affleck. And I honestly think that like in a world where like he was putting a bit more effort into it, like Jeremy Renner would be like, We'd, you'd be, he'd, he'd be better than Casey Affleck. Because the problem is that like Casey Affleck's like actually a really good actor. He, uh, every movie I've ever seen great. He's fucking amazing. And, and I feel like Jeremy really could have really been doing that. But you know, he was busy making apps. <laughs> yeah, what a mysterious uh, uh, trip. For, and of course, he's re- recovering from a serious accident also. But um, no, yeah. you're right. He could be playing like blue collar heroes, you know, for right. all of us. Uh, your turn, Ira. Do you have a question? I do. This one is just for you, Lewis. Okay. The Beths, I'm trying to pronounce that correctly. The Beth ST wants to know top five Jane Fonda performances. Holy shit. I mean, shit. And for me, I'm going to be like a girl monster in law. I know, right? So, as Jane herself said, here. whenever black people come up to me, it's monster in law. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she say that? She was doing it. Yeah. She was doing it. She was doing it. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. Come on. I would say uh, my favorite Jane Fonda performance is her first nomination, which is They Shoot Horses, Don't They? I talk about that performance all the time on this podcast, which is takes place in a dance marathon in the 30s. She comes in. She's this hardened bitch who needs to like compete in this horrible pageant in order to make money. And it's one of the most cynical movies ever, but it's my favorite performance of hers. Second favorite, I would go uh, Clute, which she won for her first Oscar for. She's a call girl in New York mm-hmm. uh, with Donald Sutherland, another actor we love. Next one would be Julia, which is where she plays Lillian Hellman, one of uh, the playwright and renowned liar uh, who <laughs> just made up this entire lark about her life that turned into this movie where she goes and has this childhood friend who becomes this kind of revolutionary and it's about their friendship. Lillian Hellman didn't have a friend like that. I heard The Children's Hour was actually only 20 minutes. <laughs> you exaggerate and it becomes an hour. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. I love Jane in The China Syndrome next, where she plays a TV reporter who stumbles on uh, mm-hmm. a big nuclear meltdown. And then the last one, she was in a movie a few years ago where she reunited with Robert Redford called Our Souls at Night. So good. It's on Netflix. And it's written by the people who did, uh, I think, the disaster artist, Scott Neustadter, whom I love. He's on mm. Twitter. Uh, yeah, so I think that's the five I would pick. Okay, great. Um, Film.Sorbet wants to know, what movies deserve to have their own themed restaurant? Wow. Let's see here. A movie I'm re-obsessed with recently. Have you ever seen Party Girl with Parker Posey? Have we oh, talked about this? Come on, baby. You know I, you know I, you, I'm 
I'm at the park. Okay. okay? <laughs> like I'm 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 I'm, I'm parking. Park <laughs> okay. I, I have I have my parking pass. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's one of the, the funniest performances ever. So that mm-hmm. immediately came to mind. And so like, early in her career. Yeah. But also during that like indie time where she's doing like 14 movies a year. Um, mm-hmm. th- that just came to mind because I, I want like a 90s queerish themed restaurant with like a, a dizzy hostess who's drunk and getting arrested. <laughs> How about you? Um, you? You bringing your Parker is funny because like, you know, I was recently rewatching Scream 3 because I, um the original unedited cut um, leaked online. And oh. so I was watching that and it's, it's fucking great. Uh, basically it's like, it's the same movie, but it's longer. And there's like the kills are more brutal. Like they spend more time in like the scenes and stuff. But like, it feels like a real lived in movie that mm-hmm. Wes Craven would have made. And then it was just fucking edited to hell. So it could be like, you know, 30 minutes shorter, but yeah, um, that movie feels I, very chopped to me. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I feel like a scream restaurant would be fun. Oh, of course. How could this? How does this not already happen? How am I not walking yeah. down Universal City Walk and ghost faces and ushering me to my table? Also, a Dick Tracy restaurant would be great. I mean, it would be better than the movie, which I famously do not like. Though I do, we, though I we do don't love have to go Madonna in it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I love that movie. I just think it's like The Simpsons, one of the ugliest things we've ever put on TV. <laughs> oh, whatever you do, Those... put more yellow in front of me. Well, I mean, I, th- I thought you were talking about all the gangster villains in it because they, the, the oh, faces are ugly. Oh, my God. I just saw some promo shots of Al Pacino and Madonna, like, boogieing down together, <laughs> and, and he's in all the prosthetics. <laughs> Woof. Guys, I mean, I can't just look at that. It's just so ugly. It's so ugly. Girl, it's giving grinder at 4 a.m. Yeah. Okay, it is. It is. Uh, it's giving steam at 4 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, give me another question. Okay, sure. And here's our last question. This is from Luxury Trash. What often maligned Oscar win will you defend with your dying breath? We haven't mm. talked Oscars yet. This is a good question. I know maligned Oscar win. Actually. Someone had asked in one of the questions that we didn't get to, um, they had asked, why has Tom Wilkinson never won an Oscar? Fabulous Because they're like, he's great in In the Bedroom Mm -hmm. and Michael Clayton. Right. But I will say, the In the Bedroom year was the Training Day year, and I will defend Denzel winning for Training Day any day of the week. I think he fucking kills in that role and i think people are like you know like it was one of those like we're gonna give him the oscar because like he didn't get it for malcolm x but it was just like he is living that fucking role like training day is his movie good answer good answer because you're right that did feel like a career win at the time um Mm -hmm. even though of course he had won for glory but that's a supporting win and and therefore it doesn't matter um no i will go with julia was like you're gonna give that man another oscar (laughs) my denzel (laughs) <laughs> I, man, I love them together. Can we get that going again? <laughs> she lo- girl, where's the Pelican Brief to? Please. Your lips to God's ears. The Pelican Briefs. Yeah. <laughs> the Pelican Boxers. <laughs> You've, that was among the dumbest comments I've ever heard. <laughs> and believe me, I've ranked them. I'm going to go with Elizabeth Taylor's first win in Butterfield 8. That's a movie that – talk mm. about it. She had been through it by that time. Famously, um, her husband mm-hmm. died in a plane crash. She was sick. People thought we might be uh, nearing the end of Elizabeth Taylor's life. Ooh, were they wrong? 
But um, <laughs> this movie is basically considered a camp classic. And the reason it's considered campy is because of the opening scene where she's writing on this mirror and lipstick. And at the end of the movie, it culminates in this chase scene that feels very uh, uh, tonally disparate from the rest of the movie. But the rest Which, of by it, the way, that lipstick scene has influenced so much of gay culture. Oh, like, yeah. Like it's the, definitely uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race. And then also, which... Um, which um, Diana Ross film is it? Uh, mahogany. I think it may be Mahogany, where like she's writing on there. Yeah, uh-huh. um, like that is. It's just like the, the lipstick writing on like the mirror, like that is iconic. Totally, yeah, it's just like it's in there, and people don't really know it's from Butterfield Eight. And also, but in the movie, her line readings are so deadly, and she is so funny. It really is a reward for a star performance. And really, when mm-hmm. you look back at the history of Oscar wins. Not too many wins that are, oh, here's just a star giving us everything, as opposed to like a compelling or gritty or real performance, you know? Like you, you don't get like a, an Oscar win for like a Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. You get an a, an Oscar win for Julia Roberts, you know, uh, fighting for a community and Aaron Brockovich. So I really applaud not just the performance itself, but the kind of performance it is. You know, it's like if Tom Cruise won an Oscar or something. I mean, listen, I mean, like, listen, I, mean, I will always advocate for, like, Tom winning, you know, for, like, obviously, you know, like, his best role, like, Magnolia, like that. But, like, I would have advocated for Tom winning for an Oscar for, like, Jerry Maguire, too. Like, totally. I'm always on the side of rewarding an actor for a star performance. I don't think it always needs to be a very serious like we're doing like a film you know i'm like you are you're a star you are delivering you are also like the reason why this movie is a hit the reason why people love it is your performance like you made the movie yeah you made the hit you made the box office that is what we should be rewarding right and weirdly that year jeffrey rush a best actor winner it's just so interesting like that you know it's so like um (laughs) you don't talk about shine that much why we don't talk about her. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush, Jeffrey slowed down. Okay. She's still making them pirates movies. <laughs> He's really good in uh, Shakespeare Love, though. He is really good. I, listen, I'm, I'm not dragging Jeffrey Rush down. I mean, he's a great actor, but, you know, like, I think we talked about this on the show before. No, don't nobody give a fuck about Shine. <laughs> and no one cared about it when it, when that came out. That, that's giving payola. It's giving slander. It's giving <laughs> attack against Tom Cruise. It's like no one was slander. watching Shine. Who has seen that movie? It's like, no, there are a couple Oscar wins back there, like James Coburn winning for Affliction. Are we sure that's a movie? Because I haven't seen it. Right. They're like, okay, before we wrap up, like this, like, give me like another one where it's like, truly, like someone won like one for a movie. And like, I mean, like, I'm sure you've seen it because like, you know, like you yeah, I have a disease. Love the institution and you're sorting it. You're supporting it. But it's just like, it's like Jim Broadbent. Like another mo- uh, yeah. You sure? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Movies where it's like, nobody saw that shit. Right. Okay, we'll, we'll be on the case for this next time. Movies that turned out not to be real. But anyway, yeah. uh, should we introduce our guest now? Yes. We will be right back with the wild party-ly talented Adina <laughs> Mazzal. Uh, Very good. You see what I did there? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, 
that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right, the little pink pill. And it's called Addy, A-D-D-Y-I, or Flavanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at addy.com slash PI or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com.
Our guest today is an actress, singer, songwriter, uncut gem, Broadway icon, and a voice your kids can't get ready, let go of. Her new album, a dance album, Drama Queen, is out now. Welcome to Keep It the Magnificent and Incomparable, and of course, Tony winning, Adina Menzel. Thank you. Thank you. Can I bring Hello. you here with me for that introduction? Sure. Oh, please. I'll be like a little carnival barker for Adina Menzel. That'd be fun. <laughs> now, I want to say I first saw you perform a song off this new album at the Glad Awards a couple months ago. Uh, I mean, not that this would be a new experience for you, but what is it like performing for, you know, a room full of, I'll say it, haughty and elite gay people? Now, did you say hottie or potty? You know what? It's a little bit of both. I have to say there's a Venn diagram mixed up. <laughs> um, it's thrilling to perform for hottie, hottie, and hilarious. And I'm trying to think of another H. That's really good. Mm. Hellish, yes. Heart, heartfelt. The thing about the Pride Festivals, like, it's different than from, you know, doing... A show, a Broadway show or something, we're even singing at like a performing arts center because everyone's packed up against the stage. You know, I, I can literally touch people. They're right there. I can see them. They're not like sitting politely in their seat, you know, ready for the overture to begin. And they're rowdy and they're beautiful and they're emotional. And I can, you know, hold the mic out and they sing songs and um, I've had dancers now, which I held I held off on having dancers for a long time. I thought, I'm not really a good dancer, and I don't really see myself as, like, the next Janet Jackson or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> But there's something about having a few dancers around you that brings some good stuff out of you. And if, you, if you're a singer, people don't expect me to dance a certain part because they want me to ground and like ground myself and sing the big notes. So the expectations are low. It's kind of like when Whitney Houston was doing it, you know, like not to compare myself to my total idol of Whitney Houston. But, you know, like when you're singing, you don't have to be the great. We know that she wasn't the best dancer, you know. So you can just do a little like side step, step together, step together with a bunch of hot dancers doing stuff around you and you look you look like a goddess. There's also something actually about pop singers doing less dancing than the people around them that's a little bit glamorous too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like I delivered the message and somebody else performs the emotion. Exactly. Very Jesse Ware, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But um but I leaned into it, you know, like this new album's called Drama Queen and one of my favorite songs on it's called Dramatic. And um I leaned into it. I wore um a rainbow covered colored puffer jacket that was like 15 feet long and the guys were kind of like my bridesmaids and they held it out behind me and I I worked it. It was 100 degrees out and I wore that puffer coat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not shocking to hear, you know, that you're like, you know, like you're not a dancer, dancer, but did you ever find that um, dancing was something that you were like, is this something I want to be interested in when you were doing Broadway? Um, or were you just like, you know what? I'm going to be the singer and I am I am never going to do a show where like you required me to, you know, uh, be dancing. You know, okay. I'm not doing anything goes. Okay. So I danced and I took, I was on toe shoes for one year when I was 12. 
and I realized toshas are loud and not graceful sounding at all. But you can't hear it. You can't hear it when there's an orchestra or it's on PBS special or whatever. But it's like clonk, 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 clonk. It's not. You don't feel graceful. <laughs> that and my boobs coming out was like, I'm, I'm done with this. And then, and then, um, and then, yeah, then I was always just, you know, I could move. Okay. But I, if I'm going to, I will start, I never say never. I, I will do what anyone needs me to do. And if the role is great, but I also don't want to, you know, be delusional, but if it's something I need to do, I will require, and I have required tutoring from the, usually the assistant choreographer who is a wonderful job it is to take me into the room, the B studio on the side and try to get me to learn eight counts in four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have, I can't get the memory thing. You know what I mean? I just, I can't pick it up fast. Even, even when I was younger, I couldn't, I couldn't like five, six, seven, eight. You got it, everybody? Now go. Like course line. That gives me so much anxiety. <laughs> no, there's a real like the fluency factor to dance that is different, I feel like, than other forms of entertainment. Yeah, not good. But it's funny in a lot of bios I see about myself, it always calls me a triple threat, which I think is so funny because I'm not, but... I, I'm sometimes they have to say I'm a triple threat because I write my own music. So that's like my other, but in, in Broadway terms, that's BS, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about how your new music, which is uh, dance music, some of it, which, uh, the producers on this album, including like Niall Rogers. I mean, you really got like the mavens of dance involved in this. Um, <laughs> if I had to connect it to what I consider your familiar catalog, I guess it would remind me most thematically of uh, life of the party from the wild party. Um, and I've always wondered if that song specifically spoke to you and, you know, your spirit when you're performing. Um, it's funny that you brought up that song because I, I used to perform it a lot with orchestras and my own concerts. And then I haven't sung it in years. And then I, the first single was coming out and I went, what was the bar that we went to out in Brooklyn? What was it called? Where we showed up and we hung out with everybody and we played the new music. I'm forgetting right now the name of the bar. I'll get it. And um, one of the performers that night lip-synced to um, Wild Party and tried to get me up there to sing it. And I couldn't remember any of the words or the, couldn't even sing the high notes. I didn't know what I was doing. But so that, that was random that you just brought that up. Um, as I recall, that character, Kate, was quite a drunk and was probably super depressed if it was the 19... 19- 20s or so, so she didn't have her um, Prozac to fall back on. But, <laughs> right. um, <laughs> You've done the dramaturgical um, research on this, yes. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> um, I'd like to say they're connected, but I think they're actually on opposite sides of the spectrum. So, because I saw that character as being kind of dark and and wounded and very um, desperate, and um, drama queen is like a celebration. I hope and it's joyful and it's party and in that way. Um, and it's also an album where I'm trying, I'm thinking less about, I spent less time overthinking and trying to contemplate what was the expectations people had of me and what kind of music I just want to do because I want to do it and I love it and it'll be fun to perform. And if I say, if I'm being honest, the only thing I gave real, thought to uh, or deliberated was um, 
that this music, dance, disco music, really lends itself to big voices. So I could really sing the way I love to sing. I don't need to hold back and make it more vibey or to fit in with the, the pop sounds of today or whatever. If, if you embrace the nostalgia and the retro of that time, you know, it's Donna Summer, it's it's Gloria Gaynor, it's Diana Ross, it's um, Barbara Streisand when she did her, you know, no more dance. tears. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. so, so we can do that, you know, and we can bring the drama and it can still cross over and be cool and you can still dance to it. And and then when Cher came back later with her whole dance album, you know, I mean, so um, that was sort of what gave me, I felt like I had permission to do that. And I, I called Mal Rogers, honestly, and said, do I have permission? Is this okay? And he was like, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's get, let's get started. I was angry at Lewis for bringing up the wild party before I could. I love the Lipa version, obviously. Um, and what was interesting is we recently had Tony Collette here and I asked her like, if she remembered anything from that era where she was in the other wild party and yep. where there are two wild parties going on in New York. Yep. Um, do you remember like anything from that moment of just, you know, like either friends or like people being like, wait, did, am, I, am I sure I'm going to see yours? Did I accidentally go and see this other one like across, um, you know, 8th Avenue or something? Like what was yeah. that like just being in a show where like there's also literally another one happening now? I remember feeling badly for the, for the creators, for mm-hmm. Andrew Lepa and for Michael John, because, you know, they were making – they were – creating their own thing for years. And then all of a sudden it comes mm. out at the same time. You know how that happens every once in a while. It's like, um, yeah. and um, so I just felt badly for them, but we were like the little off Broadway, lower budget version. Um, and, and they were the big Broadway version. Um, and all of us got bad reviews, so it didn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my my fondest memory of that time was my relationship to the cast um, mm-hmm. because uh, it was, you know, off-Broadway. We were all girls were in one um, side, one one dressing room, like a, like a chorus dressing room, everybody together. And the guys were like just a curtain away. Um, and uh, I guess it wasn't very gender friendly back then, was it? Girls and boys dressing room. But... Um, I remember that we all were super close because of that, because we were sharing the space together. And um, and we said, okay, if we don't get a, a rave from Ben Brantley and the Times and we're not, like, moving to Broadway, then let's also <laughs> book a, um, a trip together that we all get on a plane two days later in case, you know, and – and we did. We booked a trip to uh, the Dominican Republic, and we all went away together. <laughs> we just oh, drank, so we, get, we drank our sorrows, and yeah. And I remember the review. I, I don't know why I'm bringing it up in this interview, but um, I remember what he said about me in that review, and it always bothered me. Um, obviously, because I'm bringing it up now. <laughs> he called me. He called me shrill. I'm. Um, it always bothered me because I thought, well. There's a difference between between being projecting, having a big, belty voice, you know, being shrill. And um, so I think that stuck with me. And I I don't know whether I really believed it was true in that show or not. But I always sort of think about that and how to make sure that really like 
um, coming from a grounded place, no matter no matter what dynamic it is, you know, that it like, um, you're not just angry or expressing to like be sarcastic or angry. There's always coming from a, a warmth, an experience. Um, I don't know. I'm not really expressing this very well. Um, but kind of feel like shrill means disconnected and, and you can like, when you, when you're mad, someone, you know, they hear you when they're, you could say it really loud, but you can say like, are we allowed to curse on this? Oh yes. Yeah. We do all the time. (laughs) Fucking asshole. Don't walk out the door, you know, but if you're like, you fucking asshole, don't walk out the door. That's very (laughs) shrill and nobody's listening to you. So I kind of put that into singing too. And be like, you fucking asshole, don't put out the door. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making any sense. I'm a little delirious, but um, there's something to that. <laughs> um, I associate you with, of course, Broadway. And now, like, uh, all these, like, sta- dance stages you'll be taking over the summer promoting this album. But I also, of course, think of you as you perform so many times at, like, the Oscars or the Tonys or all these times where there's these one-off moments where everybody's watching. Do you have a favorite one-off performance you've ever done that maybe was on TV or something and just the the reception you got? Was there any one, like, award show, for example, that stands out? The one-off moments are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> because you never can feel completely comfortable in your surroundings, the sound that you're hearing, your microphone, what's slapping back at you. Um, you know, when you're on the road or you're on uh, doing eight shows a week or whatever – and play, you, you're used to what you hear, you know, and you can get, start to get comfortable and everything. Um, have fun. But, and you know what you're wearing and you're used to it. If you're wearing heels or you're not wearing heels and you're in your tight dress and you're not or a weird costume, <laughs> you're used to it, you know. The one-off things usually, I wear something so I feel really good, really high heels, tall, so I can feel thin. And then I'm like teetering on my heels. And then, um, the sounds weird and um, you just not, you just can't like enjoy yourself, you know? So that was the first thing that came to my mind when you asked me was no, never. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> um, like, like another time when I did um, with Wicked, I was on um, David Letterman. Um, first time David Letterman my whole life. I always watched him growing up and they put me up in the, we had this levitating device thing, you know, on, on Broadway. It was this hydraulic thing, and you get in, you strap yourself into this thing to make sure that the computer said, oh, she's safe, she's in, she's locked, now it's going to go up. And on Letterman, it was thanks. It was a, they just used, like, one of those camera cranes, you know? So it put me in and just, like, woo, which, in a way, it kind of worked, and it was a, probably a lot less money than what the producers ended up using for, for Wicked all these years, but... Um, but I remember being hoisted up, going, it's me, and going up there. And then they just left me up there. <laughs> and then they go in the commercial. <laughs> you know, David Letterman usually comes over and shakes your yeah. hand. And says, hey. He couldn't shake. I couldn't even shake his hand because I'm up in this thing. And I'm like, hi, Dave. You know, stuck up there. <laughs> like every time is just something a little unexpected. And then, you know, the Oscars, that was a fiasco for me. So it's like. I'm trying to think of a good experience. Another time I was doing New Year's Eve. They're all bad. <laughs> New Year's Eve, Times Square. I decided I was not going to lip sync um, a song um, for that. And um, I wanted people to know I, I don't lip sync. I do it even though it's zero degrees. And a lot of people 
sing to track because it's just so cold, New Year's Eve at Times Square. And I said, no, 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 going to do it in its original key. People are going to know. And then I got up there. I was wearing those heaters you wear when you're skiing, you know, and like under my boobs and on my back and on my hands. And I, and I looked heavy because I had so many layers on. And then I got to the, the last note and I totally cracked. And then everyone wrote about how bad I was. So thanks for bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of the Carpenters, for example, and they, like, they performed at the Oscars once a song called For All We Know, and I, like, historically, that's, like, one of the lowest moments for them. Like, it sounded so bad, Why? ultimately. And then they, they say? They just, like, it said the sound was horrible, they couldn't hear themselves, and the next time they performed at the Oscars, it was a complete lip sync, which you never think about with Karen Carpenter. So, yeah. So you're in good company. And then you feel bad for Millie Vanilli. I mean, look at right. those poor <laughs> they, they looked amazing. You know what I mean? They yeah, got that and, going but for they them. got such shit for that. And, you know, everybody just does it. Uh, what I want to ask, too, about this album is, um, obviously, I feel like the thing that everyone's talking about is um, you're, you make, you're making TikToks for the album. Sure are. Uh, and I, and they are, you, you, are, you are on the app. Uh, every time I'm scrolling, you're popping up in my For You page. And I want to know, <laughs> are you coming up with like, like, were you just like, I actually like making a TikTok? Or are you just like, you know, I'm doing this to promote the music. Um, you know, I've, it's what I got to do. Or are you like, you know, are you like on TikTok daily now that you're making content for it? Like, are you scrolling? Are you watching things? It's a little of all of that. I would say <laughs> so the first reaction was what nobody cares about what I'm doing in my refrigerator, taking out a <laughs> gallon of milk and then singing my song. Like, what is that? That's how you want me to promote the music or like, you know, but then, but then I end up having fun doing it. Um, then I get a little too, uh, to care too much about whether it's being seen. See, that's the thing about it. Mm. You get sucked into this, you know, who likes me, who doesn't like me, how many people decided to, you know, all that. So, but then I also want to see what actually, what actually it become, is more viral or what just sinks, you know, it's the weirdest thing. Uh, the ones I spend the most time on, I don't get that many views. And then the ones that's just like, Hey, you know, in my kitchen and my dog walks by, it's like, you know, millions of views. <laughs> like, seriously? So I feel like it rewards that, though. Like, I feel like the ones that I always see, and maybe even the ones that I feel like I'm stopping and watching of anybody on TikTok, it's always just someone like, they're walking down the street and they just decided to say something quickly or like, you know, like they're in their car or something. It's, it's, it feel like it rewards very like Fleetingness. off the cuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's so, um, um, uh, I can't think of the word, um, but it's contradicted to um, the idea of needing to make sure things are perfect because everybody sees you at every minute of the day uh. now. So it's like, not only is everyone seeing you, but you have to not have makeup and make mistakes in order for it to be good. But but if you do do something that's a little wrong or you spell your caption wrong or do something like that and then someone goes, oh, my God, and she wrote vain instead of vain, B-A-I-N instead of B. You know, it's this <laughs> – so I can't, I can't even caption it without spending three hours on my grammar, you know. 
And then by that time, I just handed over to Gio, who's here, my good friend, who's my hair and makeup. I'm like, can you please tag whoever's supposed to be freaking tagged in this? Because by the time I do it, I will <laughs> And then my son thinks it's all lame. He thinks, like, that all the stuff I'm doing is just that he needs to be paid to be my, my TikTok, you know, advisor. So... Do you at all miss, like, the Broadway world before social media? Like, I feel like that's a time that's now extremely romanticized to me. You know, just like, it was a community and you went to go hang out and it really didn't have anything to do with, oh, I'm watching this, like, video of you at a bar or, or whatever. You know, it's a, it, was, it was really a be in with each other thing. Yeah. And that's how you experience Broadway. Well, that's what I mean. You know, it's about live performance. And live performance isn't perfect all the time. That's what actually makes it so thrilling and, and um, you know, c- compelling and, and, and really speaks to you and deep in your soul or you get goosebumps. It's not because it's perfect. So um, that I resent it because I feel like now everyone's phones, even if they sneak them, you know, if they hear you on a matinee on a Wednesday and my kid had a fever the night before and he's snotty and I decide – I gonna snuggle with my kid and not, you know, uh, quarantine myself because I have yeah. a show to do. And then I come down and I'm congested as can be and losing my voice, but I'm up there because I don't want to call in sick. And then someone hears a bad note, and then it's everywhere. And then they say she's not really someone can, so can do the role better than her. Blah blah blah. blah. You know, it's just it's um, it's it's not for the faint part, you know. And uh, I've never been one that really could say I don't care what people think of me because I do. So. I will say, though, as not social media and phones, but, you know, as a, um, you know, someone with a theater degree who grew up, like, you know, like loving theater and being in Milwaukee uh, and then Chicago, um, I first was introduced to you from, like, it, they definitely weren't cell phones at the time. They had to be someone using a small camcorder, but a rent bootleg and a wicked bootleg. And you sounded great on the ones that I saw. <laughs> I don't know. That's the other thing is with, with, with auto-tune being this thing that everyone uses no matter what now in the studio, just it's a producer's tool. I think people's ears are, they're, they're hearing perfection of a note. I don't mean to get too like inside, you know, recording, but it's just things have to be right down the middle. If there's a little flat, a little sharp, which is what makes us human. It's I think people just their ears are not they don't hear that anymore. They're used to this very specific sound. And um, so I don't know, maybe because I go back and I listen, I think, oh, my God, how, how did I sing like that? But no, no one would have heard it that way back then because it was just was normal. Now everything's like Kanye West's album when he did that. Was that when he first came out with all that auto tune stuff on it? Oh, eight oh eight heartbreaks. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I want to ask one last question. Um, speaking of, I brought up Rent. Um, I first discovered that in high school, and then obviously, you know, I saw I saw the bootleg, like I said, and then I saw was finally able to see a touring version, and then I was able to see the film, and I feel like it's had such a long life. Uh, and people still love this show. And there's so many iconic songs in it, but what would you say is the song that maybe from Rhett that you, that pops into your head 
the most, or you see that people maybe bring up the most. I feel like for, I feel like usually it's like seasons of love. Like mm -hmm. you'll have like at like maybe like a important moment, you know, mm -hmm. like someone's performing it on a show or something. But I have to tell you, like, uh, take me or leave me. I see done all the time. Uh, people are always performing that. And I feel like, is that the one that like you hear about from people the most? Or is that what comes into your mind the most from the show? Well, either? it's hard for me because I, I, when I go on tour, I do that song. I do a couple mm -hmm. things. And that's one of the songs I do. And I go in the audience and I recruit people. And for better or worse, you know, we discover some amazing people and <laughs> uh, some we don't. But uh, so, I do it, so I do it all the time. So it's, it's in my... Uh, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it wasn't my DNA because we created it, but you know, it's just always around me. The song that I also do all the time that I never get tired of singing is um, I came up with my own arrangement of No Day But Today, which mm. song I wasn't a part of that scene, my character. Um, I was in the finale part of it, but in the, in the actual show, but I just always loved that song so much. It was one of my favorite songs. Um, and so I do a, an arrangement of that and um, and for me, it's my, it's kind of like a mantra for me or, um, sort of a touchstone every night when I go out there to kind of ground me, it kind of, it gives me an opportunity to sort of express gratitude to Jonathan Larson, to the audience, to the people that knew me from when, you know, bought, you know, tickets for the front row and slept outside to who've, um, meeting my first husband, like, I mean, it's just a time in my life that was, you know, so, so deep for me. Um, and, and also really speaks to trying to stay in the moment, you know, and stay present for things. And I think especially in, in our industry, it's just, you just can lose sight of that and lose perspective. And um, I think the greatest gift that Jonathan gave us um was to be able to slow down and realize how fleeting life is and to really try to not take things for granted. And so um, that's, I don't know, I just, I'm not great at it all the time, but I'm, I might, you know, I, I try to um, incorporate that into my, my world as much as possible. Well, thank you so much for being here. One thing that is a guarantee in our future is we will always have exciting Adina Menzel material, whether she's performing live or in some rad movie or in some <laughs> rad show. So it's nice, to, it's nice to catch you just in the middle of it before you springboard to your next 50 amazing things. Oh, you're yeah. so sweet. I'm a fan of you both. And um, thank you for asking me all those are good questions you asked me. Oh, we don't Thank always you. nail it. It was, it was so an honor nice. to have you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this again. Oh, yeah, yeah. You come back whenever you want. Okay, I'll come back when I have my new musical that I'm working on. It's a brand new thing that's super um, in its nation stages. But um, Oh, we can't wait. Come back and talk about it then. Please. Okay, cool. Yeah, please, please do. Well, that sounds can't like wait to news. see it. All right. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Adina. you so much. Bye. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. 
You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right. The little pink pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flavanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Jump into the world of Wildcrats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wildcrats Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey, sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org. We had a special guest with us this episode. He is a writer and film critic whose book, The Queer Film Guide, chronicles the history of queer storytelling since the beginning of motion pictures. It's an incredible archive of history that we're so happy to shed a light on. Please welcome to Keep It, Kyle Turner. And I have a question. Why is salt not in your book? Yeah, what? What gives? Salt is not in the book because there's not enough latex. T T. There's really not. There's a lot of wigs, yeah. but there's no yeah. latex. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. I have, uh, I have the Portuguese film O Fantasma, which has a gimp suit in it. Um, so, as if there was a gimp suit, then it would be in the book. <laughs> I have to say about the list of movies you compiled this first of all it goes uh, all the way back to 1918 and the famous German mm-hmm. film different from the others the best title all the way up to mm-hmm. uh, looks like Fire Island here which uh, came out just last mm-hmm. year um, are there titles in here first of all that you're surprised made it into it or are su- surprised didn't make it into it and how just impossible was it to compile all of these movies into one book. It just feels like an unbelievable task and I don't envy any of the work you had to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a really, I, I felt like a, a great deal of um, a gratitude for being able to have the opportunity to make a book like this and to compile this. And um, I obviously am indebted to Vita Russo who uh, wrote The Celluloid Closet. It was originally um, like a lecture series that he sort of took on the road and then um, made into a book in two different editions. Um, But then I um, also consulted friends who are really incredible archivists and programmers like Juan Barquin who's based in Miami and Fung Le who's based in London. And 
Elizabeth, Elizabeth Perchel, who's an archivist, especially of like gay porn cinema. Mm. They all had like mm. really interesting input. I the original list was like 186 films, and I wanted it to be idiosyncratic enough so that like you can Google best queer movies and come up with a hundred lists on the internet anytime. But if I was like trying to encourage people to have something in their home that they could refer to, I want it to be like a little weird and a little fun so that you have things like um, like Desert Hearts and Bound next to Jennifer's Body and Seed of Chucky next to mm. My Hustler and Scorpio Rising. And I wanted to really like examine how queerness could manifest as different things aesthetically or narratively or within character or within point of view. Um, and the, I guess the things that I was most surprised to that, that did end up in the book was um, I feel an incredible amount of gratitude that they let me put um, boys in the sand in there, which is the Wakefield pool um, porn film that came out in uh, I'm 19 uh 71 i think 1970 uh, early 70s yeah. um and and um that was that came out before deep throat um and it was one of the films mm. to launch this idea of porno chic and that porn cinema could be something that was like an event that like it was it was the first porn film that was reviewed by variety wow mm. Mm. okay come on variety um, mm-hmm. They're like the the box office, and this is going to be boffo. They scream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, have a question about like how you were even deciding to comprise it because, like, like you said, like you had like a larger list, and then like you cut it down. Like in creating a queer film guide, was there ever a point where you're like, okay, here are some films that have maybe gay moments or elements in them that are maybe like now we look back on them they're like maybe like gay panic moments or like awful you know i'm thinking of like something like soap dish or something like for example you know were there were there moments where you were like is that a film that you considered maybe even including or films like that where you're like it is sort of an awful moment like that represents queerness but it is also representative of like the attitudes of people towards like trans people in 1991, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I think there are definitely examples of films that I think are important to queer cultural and queer cinematic history um, that are controversial or um, problematic or um, you have to wrestle with. Soap Dish is not one of them mm-hmm. because I, I, even though like there are parts of that film that I do like, I don't think mm-hmm. it is, um, I don't think it like contributes to queer film history in a productive way. Mm. Of course, it's like a gotcha twist. Yes, yeah. Um, whereas something like The Boys and the Band, the William Friedkin film that's based on the Mark Crowley play, um, is uh, very much an artifact of its time. I know that some people like it. I like the play. Um, but it like is very much um, enmeshed in a sort of like velvet proto velvet rage self loathing. I don't know how to deal with the fact that I'm gay and um, I'm beating myself up about it and sort of trying to buy into like bourgeois middle class America isn't working for me because they didn't want me anyways. And I know that some people like don't don't care for confronting that aspect, even though I think it's very much a lived reality for a lot of people. And then there's something 
like Cruising, which is also directed by William Friedkin, which was um, protested upon um, it, its announcement and during its release, so much so that they had to re-record a lot of the dialogue. And so some of the disembodied voices within Cruising, um, it sort of adds to like the, the um, surreal effects. But like that film was coming out at a time where it does show the attitude that especially the police have towards queer people. The New York Anti-Violence Project was created um, within the year or so uh, during its production um, to combat like real anti-queer violence within the city. But I think that film is interesting enough and I think has enough good faith um, or at least ambivalent faith to examine like the structural issues of like where white queer people especially fall into positions of power because it's about Al Pacino who's playing a rookie cop and um, he goes into the New York BDSM leather scene to investigate a series of savage murders. Um, but during this time, like as he's going through these like leather clubs um, that re- really existed at the time, like um, the Ramrod and the Anvil and whatnot, um, he sees the way in which these social spaces are using the iconography of fascism, of Nazism, and um, fetishizing them. And while like you can't say writ large that all people who are into leather or into BDSM are also into fascism, it is undeniable that like the aesthetics of kink and leather are derived from very similar places as fascism and Nazism. That's just like that's just the the reality. And although like it's um tricky to conflate those things with like the sort of rise of power within white gayness. Um, I think the I think it's like a really instructive object or or artifact to consider like where how how queer people interact with power and to what degree trying to attain that power is even worth it. If it means like selling your soul and becoming a cop. It's it's like very A cap movie. I'm also <laughs> super interested in how you chose the movies from like the past 10 years because obviously we have way more movies to choose from nowadays whereas like you know if you're going back to the 1960s you're picking like the like a movie like Victim which is very out of step with the time in terms of how like blatantly gay and kind of pro-gay it was but um was it hard searching through the past 10 years of movies I imagine it was just impossible to pare down it was a lot of fun paring down and it was a matter of like do I want to pick the thing that is obvious and um that has made like a an an enormous contribution to queer culture um and the way that um queer representation whether um in front of the camera or otherwise um is most easily seen or do i want to pick something that maybe people haven't heard of or um don't necessarily think is queer something like a seat of chucky which i think was like relatively popular at the time but i don't think a lot of people necessarily think, oh, that movie has like a non-binary slash bi-gender person sort of as a main character. Right. That um, one was for me. And- okay. Cedar <laughs> Chucky is that girl. <laughs> yes, yes. Cedar Chucky. Just icon, icon. Glenn or Glenda. Um, and it was, and also like there, um, you have something like, I, I, the, the book also has 200 movies technically because you have 100 main entries and then each film has a sidebar recommendation, a wine pairing, if you will. Um, <laughs> and so it was, a, it was, it allowed me to sort of like slip in things that if I if I were 
going to highlight something like Brokeback Mountain, mm-hmm. which I ne- which I need to um, write about. Like, uh, regardless of my own personal feelings about that film, it's fine. The Wedding Banquet is better, <laughs> but it really did open the floodgates for um, for queer representation and queer filmmaking in Hollywood and mainstream filmmaking um, in a way that um, very few films have. Uh, but it also means that I get to pick something like The Wedding Banquet, which comes in the early 90s. So I get to have both of those sort of complement each other. Because um, if you're not familiar with one, you get to like ex- look at the other, see how it sort of um, sets up a blueprint for what queer movies can look like in the future. Um, and then you have something like uh, um, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, who, which is by the same director of Debs, both, uh, um, Professor Marston is a main entry and Debs is a sidebar entry, but, uh, I get to cheat a little bit and still pick a bunch of movies from the last couple of decades to show, like, the wide breadth that queer cinema can encompass, especially now that we have, uh, we have a slightly more democratized access to those filmmaking tools, um, we have more, a slightly more democratized access to these movies in general so that they can inspire other queer artists and filmmakers and creatives. Mm-hmm. I, we should say that the reason you bring up The Wedding Banquet is because Ang Lee uh, also directed that. And, oh, uh, yes, ju- yes, yes. Just to say which, some of the movies he uh, chose from recent years, it's everything from uh, Brooklyn Mountain, as you said, to Carol, to Spa Night. Uh, Andrew Ahn also directed uh, Fire Island, which is on this list. Zola. Can you ever forgive me? Now, see, that's a movie where I would say, oh, that's like a, you know, a mainstream movie that people have heard of. But honestly, do people remember that movie? That to me is part of the hard, but like what's hard about compiling a list like that is what feels obvious to mm-hmm. us is like, yeah, c- like people don't remember at all or whatever. Even though uh, Melissa right, McCarthy was obviously right. nominated for an Oscar for it and Richard E. Grant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and for those of whom that are in LA, I will be screening, I'm sorry for plugging something, but um, I will be doing a double feature of Can You Ever Forgive Me and Happy Together, the Wong Kai Wai film, which is also in the book, at the American Cinematheque Los Feliz on September 1st at 7pm. Oh, well you have to go to that. I love both those movies. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, I want to ask too about, um, you know, I think you were talking about, you know, the democratization too of like, you know, queer films now, and especially like now as you get into like the present, you know, there's um, a lot more um, queer films that we sort of can get, but also they're for different audiences. You know, obviously, you know, have like Fire Island, and you know, you have like a Bros, and then like last week, Lewis and I talked about Red, Red, and Royal Blue, and like um, Lewis also just during the week off of my recommendation, like he watched Passages, which you know I love, you know, and sort of like where do you think we are right now um, in terms of queer cinema and where it's going to be going in terms of adding things substantive to the canon? That's an interesting question. And I think it is reflective of an even broader idea of like where we are in cinema and pop culture, generally speaking, because we don't really have a zeitgeist anymore. We don't have a monoculture anymore. Um, And even within these sort of subcultural communal spaces like uh, the queer community, those things are being split up even more. And um, on the one hand, I think it is very good that we have more options for more audiences, for people to engage with different kinds of things. Um, On the other, I do think 
that it is frustrating that um, a lot of the ways in which um, streaming platform, platforms especially uh, are inclined to make a certain product um, to cater to an audience that is um, that wants to consider queerness within a more limited idea. I do find that personally frustrating just on, you know, an aesthetic level. Like, yeah, Red, White, Red, White, and Royal Blue, totally fine. I, as much as I wanted to hate that movie, I was actually quite charmed by it. Um, <laughs> but um, I, what I hope is that with these platforms, that there will at some point be a prioritization of their uh, being like a um, a central hub for people to be able to look at these things. Like, I know that like uh, when I was younger um, and getting into queer film, um, I had to actively search for these things, and um, I I liked the process of of looking for for kinds of representation or kinds of reflections or different stories that didn't reflect my experience and could expose me to other kinds of experiences of queerness, um, and my worry is that these platforms are um, de-incentivizing that process um, and de-incentivizing a more holistic way of en- engaging with queerness as like a creative point of view or a political point of view. Um, and I hope that at some point something comes along where uh, all these different experiences are are not only more um, readily available, which they appear to be, um, but will encourage their audiences to seek out other things beyond just Red, Bright, and Royal Blue or beyond just Bros or something, um, that they are sort of willing to place themselves within like this broader lineage of, of queer cinema and, and creativity. Um, but I'm glad things... I, I'm glad that there are these alternative... Um, venues and channels like a movie that releases passages um, or um, even um, a strand releasing which has a long history of of releasing things by like Greg Araki and Andrew Ahn and whatnot they just released Mutt which is pretty solid Um, yes so I hope that answers your question I have hope I have hope that the kids I actually um, just spoke to a, a group of students at Barnard recently, um, and the movies that they listed as their favorite were, like, really interesting, and I do have hope for the children. And Whitney Houston was right. The children may be our future. I'm on board. <laughs> some of them listed, some of them listed like, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is a Nakisa Oshima film with David Bowie. Um, someone mentioned M. Butterfly, the, Dem- da- the David Cronenberg Film Two and a half star movie for me, day. but good attempts. I enjoyed it. <laughs> good attempt. Good attempt. Jeremy. Good Jeremy attempt. can do whatever uh, he wants. He messes up sometimes, but he was good at it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're not a Cronenberg yeah, girl, I, though, Lewis. No, I, as you know, I think something's wrong with that man. But um, uh, <laughs> but something's so right with it. Wait, wait, Lewis. How do you feel about Crash? Oh, that's his best movie, I think. Yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. Do you uh-huh. like Videodrome? But, uh, less, less I so. Like I like the idea though. of Videodrome. Um, mm-hmm. No, uh, I was going to say, though, well, I think something, a problem with streaming platforms is, I mean, they're thinking in terms of demographics, and when they put, first of all, there would be, it would be conspicuous if they had no queer content, so they're going to have to produce some of it, but I think most of the time those people produce queer content for 
women for women. It's like for like like that's mm-hmm. the demographic that would actually consume that. So when you're watching something on streaming that's about gay people, you have to be thinking about like women who are 35 and up. I think that's who they're t- marketing it towards, you know, which is different than mm-hmm. queer content for queer people, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And the way in which these things are like hyper um, categorized and broken down into different um, genres and whatnot, I um, don't think that is necessarily conducive to exploring like the fluidity and the expansiveness that queer identity and queer experiences and queer cinema have to offer. Yeah, I think I we're mean, all like, the same. You're that's wrong. Um, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's sort of a thing that I had brought up online once, you know, when people were discussing, you know, whether or not, um, you know, like whether you agree that like looking was like good or not, like a show like that, you know, like you think about like the success of RuPaul's Drag Race and like, you know, there's been a contingent online where it's just sort of like, well, this show isn't really for us anymore. And you're like, like it started as being for us, like with RuPaul sort of like doing his thing. But then, you know, like to be like a successful show to be on this many seasons, like to, you have to have a female audience, the demographic watching it, you know? And I like, I think about the way that um, so many women on TV historically, like Sex in the City, you know, or like Golden Girls, you know, it's like the, mm-hmm. these things have been written by men, Ally McBeal, you know, they've been written by men for the consumption of women. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's just so interesting that like the queer stories that we see on television and, you know, like film and like, especially on these streaming platforms now are going to be, uh, largely created, you know, for the consumption of a larger demographic, which includes women. You know, I, I always say that, like, mm-hmm. looking or just wasn't successful. Yeah. <laughs> right, looking wasn't really successful because, you know, like, you look at that show and it's like, Andrew High is like, you know, he's making it very pretty to look at, you know, but like, are, mm-hmm. are women, like, are the masses, like, watching that show and being like, they want to talk about it every week, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a conversation with a friend years and years ago in Provincetown. And we were talking about how there wasn't this sense of, you know, exciting danger to queer art and queer film, which is like very broad generalization, of course. Um, But uh, we joked to each other that maybe it was a little better when we were a little bit more marginalized. Just a little bit. Yeah, just like you had, you were up against less, I guess. So you just like, yeah, you had nothing to lose, sort of feeling. Yeah, yeah. You could just, you could make something that was full of like fury and anger and anguish, like a living end or like a poison or whatever. Um, And like its function was to be provocative. Um, And while I do believe that like there's still work out there being created in that vein, I don't know that it, it's, if, I don't think it's getting necessarily the same attention. Um, I do think that there is like somewhat of an acceptable, uh, um, anesthetized and aestheticized version of like what queer movies are like really exciting for, you know, Oscar season and whatnot. Um, very, uh, they've got lens flare and, um, and kind of faux naturalism about them. Um, but I am happy and excited for like whatever comes next. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Maestro, that nose is LGBTQ. So, <laughs> oh, um, yes, yes. famously. <laughs> um, um, the Maestro nose was seen at pieces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to say I've been a huge fan of your writing, Ira, since you were at MTV News. Oh, and thank you. I 
And when I oh, showed ahead. my mother verbal voguing <laughs> oh when my I God. was like 12. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And my mother did not understand it. I was going to say, do you guys still have a relationship? Okay, great. <laughs> no, we do not. We do not. <laughs> Original recipe, Lewis. Wow, yes. Oh, how nice of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. back with our favorite segment of the episode it is keep it oh i'm here i'm awake sorry i'll participate hi <laughs> me lewis Fertel. uh my keep it this week goes to an article that i actually think i generally liked did it have to be this rude i'm talking about this new york times article what happens when a pop star isn't that popular and there's a triptych <laughs> on the article of Ava Max, Carly Rae Jepsen, and Kim Petras. And the subhead says, Pop's middle class enjoys loyal online fan bases. For these artists, pop stardom isn't a commercial category, but a sound, an aesthetic, and an attitude. It's literally saying they're unpopular. What the fuck are they doing being alive? Um, Kill yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> From the New York Times. Um, yeah, I mean... At the onset, I thought this was an article that didn't need to be written. Just it's, I mean, what kind of um, pitch is? What if some people weren't as popular as other people? Like that's always been right. true since the beginning of time. Some people are superstars, some people aren't. But it basically gets into how these people now occupy a space that once belonged to the label indie. You know, people were obsessed with seeing them, particularly at uh, live shows, etc. They have moments mm. where they sort of peek through, scratch the surface of stardom. But ultimately, we get they just it. have these loyal the, fan bases. The solo Debbie Gibson. She's no Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's written by uh, someone named Shad D'Souza. Basically, if you're a Carly Rae Jepsen fan, it feels like a slight to you and your identity. So I felt a little bit chosen and a little bit attacked. But at mm. the same time, I think it makes a case that, you know, it's sort of random who gets to be a superstar and who sort of floats in this middle ground with people like Ava Max. And I did not realize it says Diamonds and Dance Floors, which is Ava Max's last album, spent one week on the album's chart. That is sort of surprising for someone who de debuted with Sweet But Psycho, which was a top 10 hit. Girl, that album went triple cardboard. And I still love her. <laughs> but oh, Diamonds and Dance Floors, like, the, the dance floor was evacuated. <laughs> Also, that album is so good. I just feel like it would okay. have legs, you know? <laughs> Cubic zirconia and floor, foreclosure <laughs> is, is, is what it really was. Uh, and I love her. But, yeah. like, when we talk about Eva Max, it's like nobody else. This is, like, the same thing I was saying with Padam Padam. It's like I bring, like, Ava Max and, like, anybody else who is not, like, a gay who was up in the club. They're like, who? No. Also, you know – Kylie Minogue was counting her lucky stars that she's not in this article. <laughs> there, oh, you know what I did love that they put my girl Charlie in there, but they were like, it was also sort of like, <laughs> it felt like a teacher giving a report card because it was very much like Charlie XCX was like topping the hits with like, you know, like I love it and like boom clap. And then like she was, you know, experimenting with pop and just sort of like not charting. But now she's back with like, 
speed drive and like her other recent stuff and it's like when she tries she can get a hit and it's like okay girl <laughs> leave her alone a joy to have in class when she comes in and gets a c minus yeah <laughs> ira what is your keep it this week you know what my keep it is also to the new york times oh take it take that so, the gray lady <laughs> unfortunately this article comes from a friend of ours oh which one David Mack. But oh, uh-huh. I will say, okay, so like he wrote an article for the New York Times where it was just like, <laughs> it was an analysis of like, you know, like uh, it was breaking down like new information that like uh, what gay men do when it's their birthday, they write, send nudes and people send nudes to them. And I was like, one, stay out of gay people's business, New York Times. <laughs> and two, it's not even really a keep it to the New York Times. I have always found that concept wild to me. I have, I mean, I've never been a person who's like been like, it's my birthday, send nudes or uh-huh. something. I'm mean, like, are you that kind of person? I just like, it feel like when I see someone do that, I'm always like, girl, go do something else. I also go to just, a movie. I just feel like it has extreme loser energy. It does. It's, it's my birthday. Please, for once, consider me attractive. I mean, it just is not a vibe. Also, it's like, it's something like your friends are kind of supposed to do. Like, send me nudes. Like, we're friends. Like, it's like, ew. Right. It's just like, it's, it's not sexual at all. It doesn't feel, um, it, nothing Nothing about that. It just creeps me out. I'm sorry. It's also your birthday. So you like, you want like, Tiffany on Facebook from like ninth grade to send you her nudes, like her tasteful <laughs> boudoir photos. Is that what you want? <laughs> yeah, no. It, it's also you know, it's like it's, I, it's the kind of thing also where I'm like, I guess you would write about it in the New York Times because send nudes is like a familiar phrase now. So I'm it has legs of some kind. I mean, but at the same 20 time, years it too is late. a little weird. It's a little dubious. Yeah, it's a little late. Twenty years too late. Right. <laughs> they discovered Ishbol sooner. Yeah. <laughs> then they discover it. Send news. By the way, you say Ishbol uh, all the time, and we want to say what that is. <laughs> I, Ishbol is this, like, you put it under a caption, it means I just burst out laughing. Yeah, I mean, listen, I really do bust out laughing. I mean, like, I laugh at a lot of your comments, too. Like, right. you know, like, I really do bust out laughing. <laughs> Journalistically, it's true, yes. <laughs> One might say this about you. <laughs> the other thing I will say about, like, the send news thing is I'm like, Yes, you're like announcing it for your birthday, but I'm like, if you're that girl, you're already getting them. Okay. Uh-huh. Like, I got buffoons eating my pussy while I watch cartoons. <laughs> Is that a, a Megan uh, paraphrase? That's a little can, baby. Oh, because she, Megan. That's like, hardcore 97. Oh, right, right, right. M- Megan's is while I watch anime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Megan watches anime. You know, what my Lil favorite Kim Megan the Stallion watching- lyric is uh, I don't yeah. stand outside because I'm too outstanding. That's my favorite one. Mm, That's my favorite Megan song I, too. Girls in the Hood. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, lo- I love the idea of you listening to Girls in the Hood. I love Megan The Stallion. I listen to her all the time. This has actually never come up on this show. Oh, we, we. I don't think we've ever really talked about Megan. And I feel like, you know, like I'm like very Barbie, yeah. um, like very bar. But I feel like, um, no, I feel honestly, I I get that because um, I would say that like. Megan the Stallion, I feel like with one, like uh, I feel like she has like the best of like you know like a Nikki like Lil Kim vibe of life, like the raptress, but also like she has the performance element of like a pop star that you would like. Totally. And I feel like also her songs are very 
because she has so many interests. Like, like Girls in the Hood sounds very much like, it almost sounds like 90s, like Queen Latifah, like, like Salt and Pepper, like ish. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like she harkens back to like, She's having fun. Yeah. And that's what I want. I want the girls to have fun. Witty, good vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, social. And, yeah. And honestly, it's like... I've gotten really into Traumazine. I think that uh, I, I under, oh. underrated that when it came out. That was like a really underrated album. And I feel like it has like a lot of really good songs on it. And I would also say that like she and just like Cardi B in general are just like two really fucking likable female rappers like they're so fucking funny and they everything about them when you meet them seems very it seems very genuine yeah right exactly and it's not a put on as a celebrity it's like like we if we said before it's like you put you put cardi b on like the way that like you're like uh, you're watching old like um interviews of like you know celebrities from like the 80s or 90s on like talk shows it's just like there's gonna be like some faggots like 20 30 years from now like watching old cardi b interviews totally like, she's just She's just so fucking funny. Effortless. And Megan is too. And I'm actually like, um, first of all, you know, that um, that Munchkin went to jail. Um, (laughs) He's going to jail. Yeah. You know, um, Tory Lanez. But I feel like I'm I'm really looking forward to this chapter being behind Megan's life because I just feel like it's so like dark. um, And I'm looking forward to her like coming through with like that burst of energy and like you know, joy that we really like in her. Yeah, she she did LA Pride this year and she was a pure joy from start to finish, you know. She can, and also, that was cool She's so amazing live. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's so fucking amazing live. Yeah. Um, So I'm looking forward to like Megan's next chapter, like past all this shit. Likewise, likewise. All right, I guess that's our episode this week. And uh, I hope you loved Adina as much as we did. Man, I had a blast with her. Girl, she was giving it to us. I thought so. Yes. <laughs> Top guest. Yeah. Top guest. Totally. Yes. We got yeah. into it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Adina Menzel. And also thank you to Kyle Turner for being here with us. And uh, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right, the little pink pill. And it's called Addy, A-D-D-Y-I, or Flavanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at addyi.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including box warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at addy.com slash PI or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I dot com.
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.